Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. And the second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 20 to 22. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And the next reading continues in Matthew chapter 5, over the page, starting at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Father God, you are the Lord of life. You're also the the Lord of light and wisdom. And so we pray that as we consider life, the life you have given tonight, that you would give us your wisdom and that we might hear 
and submit to your truth. Amen. Thou shalt not murder. It sounds pretty simple. But this commandment, of course, opens up a whole can of worms as soon as you start to think it through. And it deals with some of the most controversial issues in our culture at the moment. Abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, war, suicide, alcohol, tobacco and drugs, extreme sports, your diet. It actually touches on just an enormous number of issues. And it is important that we have thought through the serious issues before the serious questions come. You don't want to be working out your position on euthanasia when, for the first time when an aging parent starts to have a conversation about uh, not wanting to be a burden. You need to have worked out what you think a long, long time before that. But the truth is that, uh, as so often with the Bible, the extreme, sort of clear to our mind what it's about things are, they're not actually where this commandment bites hardest for most of us most of the time. It's actually in the normal everyday run of life and the way that we just interact with the people around us. This is not a commandment that's relevant in a very few, very extreme cases. It's actually a commandment that is of fundamental importance to the way that you and I interact with each other each day, every day. We're going to spend most of our time uh, looking at Matthew 5, where Jesus, uh, what he does is he effectively drives the sixth commandment into our hearts. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, but before we get there, just um, as we said time and time again, the first, the, the first thing to say is the Ten Commandments, they're not what you do to earn salvation. These are not entry requirements, they're membership rules for the people of God. And secondly, they're not God's limiting our life and our fun. Uh, a whole list of things you'd like to do but you can't do. This is God, the creator, telling his creation, his rules for abundant life, that we might run fast and free in the way that is best for us. Okay, on to the sixth commandment. Genocide, war, murder, manslaughter. Killing another human being is wrong. We all know that. We all agree that actually it's a bad thing to take another life. But here's the question, why? Why is it wrong to take another man's life? Believe it or not, that's a very difficult question to answer these days. You see, in our secular society, there is general agreement that human life is valuable. We're, we're very big on human rights, the, the value of human life. But there is almost no agreement on why. Why is human life valuable? Why should you say a human life is more valuable than the life of an animal or a tree even? Why? It's interesting, you read the, um, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, um, probably the most fundamental statement of, of human rights that humanity has put together, and it has no rationale at all. There is no because. It just states as an axiom, as well we all agree, human life is valuable. Humans should be treated differently from the other creatures. We have certain rights just because we're humans. But there's no because, no rationale, it's just stated. And of course there is no scientific reason to treat humans as different 
to say that we, have, we should have rights which other animals don't. So what most people do is they turn to capacity. Intellectual capacity of human beings is, is significantly different from the intellectual capacity of, say, uh, an ape or a dog. And therefore, humans should have certain rights because we're different. We are stronger, faster, better. But there's a serious problem at this point. Because if your distinction between animals and humans is one of capacity, capacity doesn't just lead you to distinguish between humans and the rest of life on earth. It also leads you to distinguish between one human and another human. See, it's interesting, these days you actually hear very little said about the value of human life. The talking heads, the opinion writers, they talk about quality of life not value of life. You see, some lives are seen as less valuable than others. I remember uh, people chat to each other with walking dogs. It's bizarre. They chat like they've known each other for 30 years when you met them yesterday, walking dog. You add being a vicar into the mix and and people open up incredibly. And I remember having one really shocking conversation with a lady I'd met only a couple of times before walking dogs. She told me she'd just been for a a scan. They were expecting a child and um, they'd had the the test and it had come back that there was a chance. They didn't know how strong, but there was a reasonable chance the child would have Down syndrome. And she said she'd been told, get rid of it. And when she asked why, they said, well, what sort of quality of life will it have? Think Think of the cost to society as well. She was absolutely shocked by this and very confused. Is it really right that a baby with Down syndrome is less worthy of life than another baby? You've got to worry for a culture when we're not even sure, not only what the answer to that question is, but how you decide it. You see, the Bible, when we turn to it, though, gives us a very clear rationale for the value of life. In Genesis 9, uh, 5 to 6, God says this, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God, in the image of God, God has made man. In the image of God, God has made man. Men and women were made in the image of God. So all creation bears the fingerprints of God. You can see evidence of the creator everywhere in his creation, but we're different. We don't just bear the fingerprints of our creator. We bear his image. We reflect in some way, in a way that no other creature in this creation does. We reflect something of God's character, of his image. And that is true of all of us, from the very, very old to the very, very young. It's as equally true of a Nobel Prize winning physicist as of a dementia sufferer. It's equally true of an Olympic athlete as of someone with profound physical disabilities. It's equally true of men and women. It's equally true of children and adults. It is inherent to being human that we are made in the image of God. And so each and every human life is incredibly valuable. There's a church just up the road called All Souls. A very famous old minister, John Stott, died a couple of years back there. And he had an extraordinary ministry. Um, He was a a very simple man, lived very simply, just preached the Bible day by day, week by week. 
and thousands of people were saved. Thousands of people came to the church. People came from all over the world to, to All Souls. It had an enormous influence. But uh, John Stott was blissfully unaware in one sense of these things. And quite often you'd have this situation on Sunday mornings. And you talk to some of the old staff there where um, there'd be some visiting dignitary, you know, senator from the states or an archbishop from africa would be over to and come to all souls and after the service would be waiting to speak to john and he would be chatting to some little old lady and there would be the <clears throat> from the staff member who'd brought the archbishop over and uh, some uncomfortable shuffling and checking of the watch and john would be blissfully unaware engaged in conversation with this little old lady and when a when staff member famously pulled him aside one point and said, look, um, John, do you not think um, it might be more important to spend some time with these guys? They've traveled all over the world and there's some very, very important people here this morning to see you. More important than her, he replied. More important than her. God the Father made her in his image. God the Son sought that she was worth shedding his blood for. And God the Holy Spirit thinks she's worth living in. Who could be more important than her? <laughs> Yeah, not a, not a conversation the staff member really wanted repeated, but it became famous. Or to put it in another way, according to the Bible's teaching, every single human being to ever draw breath is more valuable than Cecil the lion. And I think it was appalling that Cecil was killed. But we, we're losing these distinctions because we have, we've lost the sense that humanity is made in the image of God, we, we've started to lose any sense of proportion. But every human being, every human being, no matter how young or old, is made in the image of God. And that leads us to the sixth commandment in Exodus 20 verse 13. And instantly we have a problem when we read the text of the sixth commandment. You shall not kill murder. Which is it? Uh, the, the word ratsak it doesn't translate exactly as either kill or murder. And so we're left with a bit of a quandary. But remember, the Ten Commandments are summary statements. They, are, they don't tell you everything. They, they summarize um, the, the teaching. And so you look at the rest of the law to work this out. And what you find is deliberate murder is clearly prohibited in the Old Testament law. And that also includes when you intend to hurt somebody but you maybe not intended to kill them. So if two men are having a fight, um, a fist fight, and one of them picks up a rock or an iron bar, that counts as the same as murder. You're guilty of their blood. Unintentional, accidental death is also prohibited, what we call manslaughter in this country. So in Deuteronomy 19, if you're out in the forest chopping wood and the axe head flies off your axe and kills the guy you're out chopping wood with, then it's actually a very serious matter. Now, typically in ancient societies, what would happen at this point is that the person who's been killed, his family would appoint an avenger of blood and they would pursue you and they would kill you. And then your family would appoint an avenger of blood and you would pursue and it would run like that down through the generations. And still in some uh, cultures today, you'll find that there are blood feuds. In Afghanistan, um, you can read stories today of blood feuds that mean families have not been able to leave villages for generations for fear of the other villages. But in Israel, what happens is you have a city of refuge. So the killer is allowed to run to a city of refuge where the elders would hold a trial and determine whether the killing was accidental or whether it really was murder. But if it, even if it was held to be accidental, you had to stay living in the city of refuge until the high priest had died. 
Why would you have to wait for the high priest to die? Because even if it's an unintentional death, it is such a serious thing to be involved in the death of another human being that uh, the life has to be paid for in one sense. And so the death of the high priest effectively atones for those accidental deaths and you could then leave the city of refuge. Now it seems really OTT to us, but the point that is made throughout the Old Testament is that human life is immensely, enormously, unreservedly precious. And we should not see it as a small thing to ever take another life. So murder and manslaughter, they're covered. But the commandment doesn't prohibit all killing. So there is some nuance. The Old Testament does command capital punishment and some war, but both are are very clearly regulated. So capital punishment, uh, basically the Old Testament says some things are so, so serious that they do merit death. And in one sense, that shows a high view of life because it says if you take another life, that life is so precious that you forfeit your own life. But it's very carefully regulated, so it can never be done on the testimony of one witness. And the witnesses have to be involved in the execution. So it's a very, very serious matter. And it's not, you know, some scrap of DNA that could have come from anywhere. It's very, the, the bar of evidence is incredibly high in the Old Testament. Likewise, um, the, the wars are not just whatever war you want to fight. When God's people go to war when God hasn't told them to, he gets very angry and lets them be defeated. You see that in Numbers. But occasionally, God calls them to fight battles as his instrument of judgment. And it's a very serious thing. But there's no, there's no sort of, oh, Christians go on, go on crusades whenever you want. There is no sense of that in the Old Testament. It's very rare, and it requires the specific command of God. And it can only be done for a just cause. So you've got um, some war, just war. You've got... Um, execution for for some crimes but also self-defense is permitted but again it's amazing how carefully regulated this is so in exodus 22 2 to 3 you're told if a burglar breaks into the house and you have a fight with them and they die you're innocent but if it happens in daylight you're guilty of their blood which is a very very sensible rule because at night you can't see you don't know if they're armed um, and so it says look if, if it happens at night then you're innocent if the burglar dies but not during daylight it's not as if yeah they're in my house all bets are off very, very careful prescriptions in the Old Testament. So the starting point in any discussion is this. Life is valuable. Every human life. And that means, if you're going to say death is permissible in this instance, you've got to have something enormously heavy to stick in the scales. It's got to outweigh they're made in the image of God. So I'm not going to give you rules here. It would be very easy. I don't want to talk actually about the, the, the hot issues that I guess we're all aware of that are flying around in our culture. But not because we shouldn't talk about them in church, but because you shouldn't talk about them in trite five-minute sound bites. Um, if you're going to talk about some of these big issues, you actually need to give it a whole half an hour, hour, and have time for questions. But what I can do, I think, briefly, is give us the principles. And I think the main principle that we find is this. When you find yourself agreeing that it is right to kill another individual, whether at the start of life in abortion or at the end of life in euthanasia or anywhere in between, you need to ask what cause, what end, what reason is so 
great, so important, so weighty, that it can outweigh the fact that this individual is made in the image of God. Now, many Christians in 1939 decided that the evil of Hitler was such a reason and so fought in the Second World War. But our starting point must be human life is so valuable because humans are made in the image of God that I need something enormously valuable, enormously strong if it is to outweigh that. That's how we make our decisions. Okay, in one sense, that is the context into which Jesus is speaking in Matthew 5 when Jesus then takes up the words of the Old Testament and applies them to his culture um, as he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. And we're just going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus very famously uh, takes this commandment on in Matthew 5. So if you turn to page 969, page 969. Verse 20. We'll start at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Which would have been devastating to Jesus' audience. The Pharisees were not the comic book villains that we know. They were a cross between Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela. That's how they were viewed in their culture. And Jesus says, you, they're not even close to the righteousness that God requires. The reason is this. Their righteousness was external. They reduced all the law of God, all the Bible, to external rules that you could tick and know where you stood. But you could do it all while hating God, actually. Or you could do it all while feeling incredibly proud about yourself. And so Jesus says, uh, your righteousness has got to far exceed a whole load of external rules. You see, they'd forgotten that Jesus' summary of the law is that the, the whole Old Testament law is summarized as love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love. And you can't love by ticking boxes. And so, when Jesus turns to don't murder... He takes it further because don't murder was never meant to be the end of it. It was just meant to show you how valuable human life was. And so he says, verse 21, You have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka is a, basically just a rude, abusive insult. And fool is a moral judgment in the Bible. It's not saying, oh, you're a bit of a joker, a bit of an idiot. It's saying, no, you're a morally deficient, wicked person. It's a serious insult and a serious moral judgment being made. And the point that Jesus is making is this. You do not break the sixth commandment the moment you stick a knife into somebody. You break the sixth commandment when you start harboring the resentment, nurturing the grievance, stoking the anger inside that leads you to stick a knife into someone. See, the very first murder in the Bible is Cain killing his brother Abel. And you see that murder is just anger allowed to run its course. God is is pleased with Abel. God delights in Abel's sacrifice. And Cain sees and Cain is angry because God is pleased with Abel and he's not pleased with Cain. And God sees Cain's anger and he warns him. He says, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. 
Cain gives in to his anger, and anger leads to death, the first murder in the Bible. You see, anger and murder are not separate things. Anger is when it stays in my heart. Murder is when I act out on it. But it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They're not different things. It's just taken further. That's all. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but that's really not the issue here. It's not in view. But you and I break the sixth commandment where God says don't murder. We break it when we burn with anger because we burn with anger against people made in the image of God. See, the problem, though, is other people are very, very annoying. (laughs) It's not just me, then. You've noticed that as well. (laughs) And the closer we get to them, the more they can wind us up, which is why our closest relationships are also the people we get most angry with. I heard an interview with an old man who'd been married 60 years, and he told the interview they'd had all sorts of ups and downs. And the interviewer said, did you ever consider divorce during your 60 years of marriage? Divorce? Never. Murder? Quite often. And the thing is, the closer the relationship, the more the temptation to real anger. And men, we need to watch ourselves. Women get angry too, but it is undoubtedly men for whom this is the bigger problem. And almost every man will know this is a serious challenge. And we need to fight it. It's not enough to say, it's a man's sin. I just need to let off steam. We're breaking the sixth commandment when we blow off in anger with people, when we boil with anger at people, when we get furious about things. It's not a small thing. It's linked to murder. Murder is the logical conclusion of anger allowed to run its course. And God warns us here that eternal judgment is the just punishment. So don't be easily provoked to anger. I was rather sobered thinking as I was writing this that um, I ordered a pizza. I rather like pizza. In fact, I very like pizza. If I had to live on one food for the rest of my life, it would be pizza. Um, And I'd be happy, genuinely happy. But there we go. Uh, And the pizza took an hour and a half to come. And I was very, very hungry. And when I phoned up uh, to find out what was happening, I got a string of evasive non-answers and um, different tales from everybody I spoke to. Because I phoned at least five times. Um, And by the end, I was steaming mad. I was really furious about a pizza that was an hour and a half late. You just think first world problems. But it, it was, and it was a real lesson to me how easily I could allow myself just to get furious about almost nothing. God loves people he's made in his image. And the person that I was angry with, who'd messed me around, God took the time to create them and God took the time to impress his image upon them. And in a way, they reflect the image of God. And I just hated them. It's no small thing. Well, so far we've considered the negatives, the things we shouldn't do. But remember, the two principles that summarize the the whole Old Testament law are positives. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're positive principles. And so it's not just about avoiding killing people. We're also to do all we can to love and protect people. And so you always find a higher proportion of Christians become doctors or nurses or work in the health profession because rightfully we love people 
and we want to protect life. You always find a higher proportion of Christians get engaged in campaigns to to look after and protect the lives of others. Most of the legislation in this country that uh, protected the lives of children from uh, the dangerous factories and mines was driven by Christian love and the desire to protect life. And so, positively, we ought to love and protect the lives of others. And that will look different for all of us, given our different opportunities and capacities. But we don't keep the tenth commandment just by uh, the sixth commandment just by avoiding to get angry, avoiding to murder the person who cuts us up in London. We keep it by actively seeking to protect and promote the life of others. And perhaps most amazingly of all, we are to love not just other people, but as our final reading told us, we're even to love our enemies. Uh, Turn over to page 970. Verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or to put it another way, do not even Islamic State love their own? How can we claim to be better if we only love those who are like us? Now, the Old Testament never actually said, hate your enemies. It was just it said, love your neighbor. And so the... The scribes of the time decided, well, it must therefore mean hate your enemy. But that was never God's intention. And so not only are we to not get angry with people, we're to positively love even those who provoke us to anger. Not just our friends, not just people like us, but people who hate us. People who actively pursue our downfall. People who get you, try to get you fired from your job. People who try to do physical harm to you. People who swindle you out of your money. And one of our responses, if we're Christians, is that we are to love them. We're to love our enemies. Now's not, now's not the time to debate where's the line between uh, the Bible allows self-defense and how... Do you have a right to self-defense and love your enemies? We can work that out, but, but as Christians, we're not to have the attitude that we stand on our rights and look for our rights. I remember um, friends um, talking about, uh, it was when the, somebody got prosecuted for shootings and burglars who came onto their property. And we were discussing the rights and wrongs of it. And I remember hearing a couple of Christians say, if somebody comes into my house, all bets are off. And I thought, that's just not. If somebody attacks my family, I will protect them. Yes, you must. But if someone comes into my house, all bets are off. We're not looking for excuses to hurt. We're looking to bless and love. Now, there's some difficult issues to work through. we've, uh, We've peeled the scab back on all sorts of issues that require some serious thought and prayer. But the biggest question actually is how on earth do we find the power to, to love like that? <laughs> how, can I, how can I not be wound up by people who hate me or who annoy me? How can I be a person who gives myself to love others? 
And the key, of course, is found at the cross. Which is ironic because the God who is so very, very serious about being preserving life, who has a, a law full of things to say, you must be very careful to make sure that even accidentally you don't end up killing somebody, is the same God who recklessly throws away his own life for those who hate him. And instead gives us forgiveness and eternal life that we do not deserve. The God who calls on us to preserve lives throws away his own life to save us. And I think there are, there are three things, just as we close, that um, we find at the cross that you and I need to know if we're not going to break the sixth commandment, if we're going to keep God's law. The first thing we find is forgiveness even for a murderer. I do not care what you have done. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you are forgiven and welcome here. I've sat in church with a convicted murderer before. And if Jesus' death is enough to pay for my sins, my anger, then it's enough to pay for his murder. And so whoever you are, whatever you've done, if you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven and you stand here as forgiven as anybody else tonight. The second thing we find at the cross is love. See, uh, 1 John four nineteen puts it this way. We love because he first loved us. It is not natural to love. At least it's not natural to keep loving. And it's certainly not natural to love more than you get back. But at the cross we find God pours limitless love on us. And if we keep coming back to the cross, if we keep confessing our sins and receiving God's forgiveness, we'll find the love that we need to pour our love on other people. At the cross we find forgiveness. At the cross we find love. And thirdly, perhaps most surprisingly, at the cross we find something else we need if we're not going to hate. At the cross we also find justice. You see, there can be a sort of trite way that we talk sometimes as Christians that um, you just need to forgive. Uh, Jesus helps you forgive. Jesus has forgiven you so you can forgive others. But if you've ever been really seriously abused, wronged, hurt in a deep way that has scarred your life, that has changed the direction of your life, or if you know somebody you love who's been, whose life has been ruined, broken by wickedness, then it's actually, it's not enough to say you must just learn to forgive. And I don't think it's what the Bible tells us to do. You see, at the cross we find something else which is immensely liberating and enables us not to burn up with a desire for vengeance. And that is that at the cross we find justice. So we're told in Romans 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. At the cross, we see that sin and wrongdoing are so serious that even when God's precious son Jesus takes them on himself, God will punish them. You'd have thought if God was ever going to ignore sin, if God was ever going to give a bye to anybody, it would be his perfect son Jesus. But no, when Jesus took on sin, well, God could only punish him and put him to death. And therefore, the Bible says to those of us who are struggling to forgive, who are burning with anger. Not just forgive because God has forgiven you, but also 
Look at the cross and see here is a God who punishes wickedness. You do not need to burn with anger and the desire to punish that person. Because God will punish them. We don't often speak like that, do we? But there is a day of justice coming. And the down payment for that day, the assurance of that day is the cross. Where we see a God who will not ignore any sin. Every sin, every crime, every wickedness is either paid by Jesus on the cross or is paid a judgment day in the future. But that is a wonderful comfort if you've suffered greatly. Even if you've murdered, even if you've murdered, there is forgiveness at the cross for you tonight. Even if you've hated, even if you've been very angry with people you should have loved, there is forgiveness at the cross for you tonight. Even if you struggle to love people in your family, people you work with, people who've hurt you, there is love at the cross tonight. There is love from God for you and there is love from God through you to others. And even if you are burning with the anger and the desire to take vengeance on somebody, there is punishment at the cross and the promise of a God who will take care of it. Do not kill. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word is not trite and simple and uh, your Bible is not just a a book for for nice middle-class comfortable lives or for Sundays in church, but your word speaks to the mess, the horror, the seriousness, the difficulty, the confusion of our world. And we thank you, Father, as we read this, uh, this sobering word, do not murder, do not be angry. We thank you that there is full forgiveness for any and every sin at the cross. And we thank you too that there is love and there is justice. Help us to know these things, to believe them and experience them, that we might be set free to love radically. We pray that there would be no explanation, no rational explanation for the way that we treat our enemies, for the way that we love other people. That the only possible explanation must be that we know a God who has loved us and given himself for us. Amen.